Welcome to Teaching That Counts, a podcast dedicated to the teaching and learning of mathematics. We discuss a variety of topics from building thinking classrooms to creating a more equitable math class. I hope that the conversations that I have with my guests help inspire you in your own classroom, school, or district, or if you're a parent like me, with your child's mathematics journey. You can find me via my website, teachingthatcountspodcast.com, or on socials at Teach. Thank you again for joining me, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Well, welcome everybody to the third episode of Teaching That Counts. I'm excited for you guys to listen to this episode, one in which I am joined by a extraordinary classroom management consultant and author, Grace Dearborn. She's written books such as Picture This, Conscious Classroom Management, and several others on classroom management and engagement. Grace is is such an awesome person I've met. I've had the chance to see her both in her online workshops, in her webinars, and also in person as she's come to our district many times to talk about classroom management and engagement and just getting the kids and the culture in your class to be in a place where students are ready to learn. So in our conversation today, you'll hear Grace talk about classroom management. Of course, that's that's her cup of tea. We talk a lot about management in group work because we've been talking about building thinking classrooms on this podcast. And when we have students in vertical non-permanent surfaces and in randomized groups, that creates situations where students do continue to be off task. They continue to, to do, um, you know, they continue to have misbehaviors. And a lot of times, especially when we're new to teaching in this format, you know, we also have to consider the new ways that we might have to manage the class. So I think Grace gives such a great, um, some great advice to how we can start to manage uh, misbehaviors in classes where we're using vertical non-permanent surfaces, where students are working in groups, and where there's a lot of movement in class. We have some great, uh, some great moments where we talk about games and engagement and how to get kids involved using using games and competition. That's always fun in class. And we have some great conversation about creating wonder and joy in the classroom, building in that classroom culture and a love of learning for kids and a love of learning for our teachers and how teachers and students can be become more confident learners in either their learning like students or in their teaching profession as teachers, you know, as teachers make their way through these journey of teaching and finding a place where they love to be where they are. So I, I'm, I'm super thrilled to share this podcast with you. I hope you enjoy it. Again, her name is Grace Dearborn, and she is just an amazing person. I hope you go out and you look her up and find her books and her webinars and things online. She's got such a great amount of useful information for you guys. So Enjoy. Here we are, Teaching the Counts, episode three. Uh, with me today on Teaching the Counts, uh, I, I'm just super excited to welcome Grace Dearborn. And Grace, if you can introduce yourself, you, you're author of many books. And I know that um, I met you here when you came to our district and you had some PDs around classroom management and just 
many of the things just resonated so much with me. And I think that the listeners will get so much out of our conversation today. Oh, well, so, fingers crossed. Yeah, just just uh, just introduce yourself to our to the listeners. All right. Hi, everyone. My name is Grace Dearborn. I am the executive director of Conscious Teaching at the moment. And that's um, more impressive, less impressive, rather, than it sounds. That's less impressive than it sounds. Yeah. Uh, I was a classroom teacher for a long time in the East Bay of the San Francisco Bay Area, I taught primarily high school, but also some middle school and elementary school. And after many years of that, ultimately transitioned to mentor teaching, instructional coaching, and now have transitioned to consulting, which is what I do now. I travel the country full-time doing workshops with schools and teachers, administrators, instructional coaches around mostly classroom management and student engagement but also I do some instructional coaching, navigating tricky conversations with reluctant teachers. And I do a leadership workshop for administrators and, and people in charge. Yeah, that that is awesome. And I, I love the work that you've done, um, especially in our district with classroom management, but engagement. I think that over the last, I'd say 10 years, the engagement over in last, really, five to 10 years. And I know that you've been a part of this. Uh, we've just seen so much more engagement from students and discussion. And that really, I think, comes to how we build culture in our classrooms. So I, I just kind of want to uh, ask you some advice that you can give teachers and administrators on like, how do we build culture? In our, in our classrooms at the start of the year, because a lot of people right now are just starting the year off. Some people have been in school for a month, but as you know, uh, once we get, we get past the honeymoon phase and things start to happen and we want to get the kids back into the culture of learning. So what advice maybe do you have for teachers and admin as we get started here um, or we get into this after the honeymoon phase to really get kids back to um, building that culture of learning in the classroom? That's a really broad and big question. Broad and big question, It's yeah. difficult to answer in a quick uh, soundbite, but I would say, I'm sure you've heard a lot, and you maybe had other guests who are talking about relationships and how important it is to connect with kids and be curious about them and their lives and try to weave some of that, bring that forward and weave that into the lessons and the culture in the classroom. And I absolutely agree that that is foundational and key to building the kind of classroom culture you want. But I also believe that that is not enough. Mm. And there, I think in the previous year in particular, we focused so much on connecting with kids and understanding their trauma and trying to address the trauma that many of them have experienced, especially as a result of COVID, that we forgot to expect things of kids. Yeah. And that led to its own set of problems. And I really believe that the key to a positive classroom culture is a balance between knowing the kids, connecting with the kids, loving the kids, and holding the kids accountable for appropriate behavior and for engaging with the learning. 
And that is a very difficult mix of things to right. do, very difficult <laughs> balance to strike. But I will say on the side of structure and expectations and accountability, the number one thing I think that teachers can do to build that side of the equation is to focus more on the teaching and reinforcing of their procedures and routines. Right. In general, when I observe a classroom, and I observe classrooms all over the country all year long. Yeah. And when I observe a classroom that is chaotic or kids are disengaged, even if they're not chaotic, where there just doesn't feel like a positive classroom culture or that kids are engaged in their learning, one of the main things I see is that students have got the idea from the teacher that it's optional to listen, Hmm. pay attention, or do the work that's being asked of them. And that comes from teachers who haven't taught and reinforced their procedures well enough at the beginning of the year, or they're not doing it now mid-year. And and so that can be the number one place where you can start to build upon something new or start to create a shift or a change is in the reteaching of, the reinforcing of, but not in a okay, class, you're not doing what I want. So we are going to do it different. And you're going to do it not like this authoritarian yeah. way, but in, in a way of being on their side, but also being in charge. Class, this isn't going the way it's supposed to go. This isn't how our class is supposed to start in the morning. That's not your fault. That's my fault because I'm in charge of how the class <laughs> But I have a solution. I'm going to tell you what I want. I'm going to show you what I want. I'm going to model for you what I want. You're going to practice giving me what I want. And then we're going to try it in real time. Yeah. And there will be incentives for doing it correctly. And there will be consequences for doing it incorrectly. But we're not there yet. Right now, let me just explain. Right. right? On their side, it doesn't have to be this I'm angry and frustrated with you. I will say, just because I mentioned consequences and incentives right there, don't give a consequence to your entire class because Mm. three, four, five kids are not doing things the way you want them done. Right. That destroys classroom culture. When I have 80 or 90% of my class, my students on my side, but the other 10% or 20% I don't have. And then I'm giving a consequence to my entire class because this 10 or 20% won't do what I'm asking. That degrades it undermines my connection and my relationship with the 80% that are doing what I want. Right. Yeah. I, you know, we, in math, we're moving um, towards uh, a lot of the people that listen to this podcast. We started with building thinking classrooms. So a lot of us are working in with groups, groups of students in three up at vertical whiteboards working together. And some teachers have made a, a, like monumental shift. We went from, you know, having a controlled direct instruction class all the way to uh, now students are working in randomized groups and and threes on vertical whiteboards. And we're seeing, you know, some of those behaviors now starting to manifest and being off task just up. Now they're off task up at whiteboards instead of being off task at their desk. So some teach, I know I've talked to a a few teachers that were like, well, you know, I I think I'm going to stop doing the whiteboards because um, I can't get, there's still like five kids that aren't like they're disrupting the rest of the class. And I I think that goes to what you're saying. Like we, we tend to, to feel like, well, 
this uh, working in groups and working on boards is must be a uh, incent like a, it, it must be like more incentivized instead of being the structure of our class. And the more and the more that we're talking to teachers like this is actually the structure of the class. Just because five kids aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing doesn't mean we take the whole class and put it back to what we were doing before. We need to find a way to get these kids um, to be on task. So, so I guess that's kind of my follow-up question is as teachers are trying something new um, where they're, the students are working in groups, some of the students are starting to like, they're starting to be off task. They're starting to disrupt another group, um, things like that. How do we get those kids back on, on the same page? So I'll start by saying one of the things I love about the kids standing and working at the whiteboards and groups rather than at their tables is that movement is great for learning and attention and focus and uh, alertness, right? Yeah, You're right. moving your body and there's more like circulation. And uh, the idea of that is really great. But like any great idea, it can yeah. be poorly implemented or well implemented. <laughs> right. And um, and there are inherent problems with a structure like that. One of them being that kids can get off task pretty quick in their small groups at their whiteboards. And it's a little bit harder to manage, oversee, supervise, and control than when they're sitting at groups. Right. But there are things you can do, and these are not different than the things you would do actually if they were sitting at groups. This is just managing off-task behavior. And uh -huh. off-task behavior is off-task behavior. So I this might be a little bit controversial, but my main recommendation would be to have kids in ability-alike groupings instead of in heterogeneous groups. Huh. You put students in groups in a heterogeneous group. They The highest performing student all, almost always does all the work. The lower performing student, there's this idea in education that the lower performing student or the lower ability student will somehow glean from the higher performing student how to do things. But that isn't in reality what happens. Right. I think most classroom teachers will agree that they've tried that. And that isn't what happens. The, the lower ability student just does nothing and coasts on the higher ability student. Yeah. Personally, I have had much better luck putting my students in ability alike groups, all my high performers together, all my low performers together, because what that does for me as the person managing the classroom is I don't have to check in with my three or four high performing groups. They are self-motivated, they are interested in what they are doing, and they will talk to each other and figure things out together the way we always hoped these kinds of collaborative tasks would go. Yeah. And I'm building positive relationship and culture with them because they have spent their entire school careers being put in heterogeneous groups where they carry the group and they resent that. Yeah. Yeah. So we, also what it absolutely. does for me is the lower my two or three lowest performing groups that are together at whiteboards, like these three groups, I can spend all my time there helping, guiding, differentiating the task, uh, pushing them forward. And there's nobody for them to coattail on. They somebody has to rise. It gives yeah. them the opportunity to expand and rise and me the opportunity to differentiate and support. And so for me, that's key to making a structure like this work. And yet I don't see anybody doing it that way. Right. Yeah. There's we um, 
Yeah, what, what we've been doing is um, randomize groups on a day-to-day basis so that students, so that they're not like- They never I, know. Totally, yeah, they, they never know. Like, I, I, you know, kids know when, what their skills are, right? And so when we place kids with a high performer and we place them in a certain way, I think kids just, kids know like, oh, he put me with the, we he put me with the smart kid. And then they end up, like you said, writing the coattails of, of that. And then the smart kid does it, or the, I say the smart kid, I, I don't mean the smart kid, but the, the kid that's succeeding well in class, right? That's getting it pretty quickly thinks, well, why am I doing all the work? So um, we've been using randomized groups daily, but I think, you know, I saw a teacher do this and I, I think adding to the structure that, that this teacher had would have been great in the way that you're, you're saying during intervention time, during time when we know kids are struggling with something, that's when homogeneous groups work really nicely. Like you said, right. We get the kids that they don't need the support right away. They don't, they can go and do this some spicier problems do like go on, but the focused attention goes to those groups that are needing the support and um, still letting them work in groups, like still getting them to work together. And uh, I, I, I totally agree with that. I, I see that working great um, in intervention. I see that working great for management. But it doesn't purposes. have to just be for intervention. So there's a middle ground, right? You're right. Exactly. Or- having your kids up at these whiteboards and it's a little bit chaotic and there's a certain percentage of students who aren't really engaged, aren't really getting it. You can pull those kids aside privately, you know, maybe at another point during class and say, I noticed that the six, seven, eight of you um, are struggling to stay engaged and struggling to be in the cooperative group and struggling to provide something or add something of value to the work when we're standing at the boards. And so tomorrow, when we're standing at the boards, I'm going to pull the the six of you out and we're going to, you're going to be in my small group and we're going to work together and everybody else will be randomized, right? You can still do randomization with kids who are already kind of on board with you and at least slightly engaged. And then you can tell your small group, so this isn't forever. Where right. I'm gonna work, I'm gonna, I just I think it will help you if I'm more clear with you about how this structure is supposed to work. And we'll do that by you being in my small group today. And then if I feel like you're there and you're contributing and you're moving forward with this, then tomorrow you'll be back in the random mix. So you still need to pull out, even if you're doing random, you can do that, but you still need to pull out a need. This isn't a punishment, right? This, this is intervention. It, I'm not punishing you. I'm saying you need more than what this structure is providing. And I'm going to provide that more until you have it. And then I'm going to put you back in the structure with everyone else. And the, but the other thing, and if you don't want to do that, I get it. But the other thing that will make a huge difference in these kinds of cooperative groups is if before you stand them up and send them over to their whiteboards to work on a particular problem, you have them all look at a similar problem or the actual problem they'll be going to for two, three, four, five minutes on their own independently and try to write down some questions or thoughts or start to solve the math problem or start to answer the comprehension question. When we throw them cold, you always get the higher ability person doing most of the work because the kids who aren't 
really, really quick at these kinds of things, even if they are high ability, even if they are engaged and interested, they don't have the opportunity to quietly alone individually have thoughts before their higher uh, speaking, you know, their their quicker speaking colleague jumps in there and starts going, okay, this, that, 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 uh, uh," and they could have, but they never get the chance. Mm. And so really high quality collaborative group work in any structure always works better, is more rigorous for everybody. If they get two, three, four, five minutes of silent, independent attempt at the work that they're going to be doing in the group before they go to the group. Mm. So they're ready to have something to share. And so the people who process a little bit slower have the opportunity to process ahead of time and be ready to share when they get there. And really nobody does that. And it makes all the difference, all the difference in how in depth and rigorous and interesting the collaborative conversations become in the work that they do together. Yeah. Well, that's some great advice. I love, I, 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 I really think that's going to be helpful for a lot of people that I've talked to about some of the situations that are coming up in their classroom. Um, just a side note and um, just something interesting. I I know I heard that you play some poker. I do. Yeah. And I also play poker. And, and so um, I was uh, bringing, not that I taught my students ever to play poker. Um, it, it was really popular like 10 years ago and the students would, come in so when I did randomized groups I would do cards and I think a lot of kids would know cards but now it's kind of yeah it's not as popular and so I've always had to teach my kids like what what a card is like like what is a spade like they don't even know like who's heard of a spade right (laughs) so um uh I just I wanted to ask like how how often do you do you play poker? Do you still play poker? Oh, uh, so I have I have been playing in a regular game with some of the same guys for 20 years. Wow. Uh, it started a long time ago with um, some people I knew on the, on this friend's houseboat and he would host the games and we would all go and play. And I was the only uh, female playing. And yeah. uh, but I loved it. I love I love all kinds of card games and board games and I love games in general. And we played for years and years and then it, you know, people went their separate ways and had lives and children and partners and moved and things. And then there was like a big gap. There was a big gap of time, maybe 10 or more years where we weren't playing. And then we all saw each other at one of my friends, like 50th birthday parties. Everybody came back together for this person's 50th birthday party. And everybody was like, Hey, have you been playing poker? No, I haven't been playing. Hey, you know, what? there's a bunch of us here at this party. Maybe we should get the game back together. And so we tried to get it back together. And so I've been hosting it since then. Every month we play nice. once a month. And uh, we've been playing again for, I don't know, about uh, five or six years maybe now. Wow. That's yeah. great. It's so much fun just to be with with other people and and to, to have a, a night of, um, you know, I see it very you know, I'm a math person, so I see very probability based <laughs> as it. Um, but I know that you know people, and um, I'm sure you know you, some people. Yeah, so you uh, you you have that human element as well. Yeah, I play for the social. I, I'm super competitive, but and I and and I'm competitive when I play, but I play more for 
the the social aspect like I just like being with these people and playing a game and the stakes make it a little bit more interesting right yeah. but we don't play so high stakes that people go home going oh no how am I going to pay my rent yeah right? you know we we play at a low enough um bet level that right. you know the most you're going to lose in a night is is if you had a really bad night and you kept buying in when you shouldn't have, you might lose a hundred, hundred and twenty dollars. And if you had the best night ever, you might win a hundred, hundred and twenty dollars. Like that's the maximum outside. If you were, you kept buying in when you shouldn't have, you should have just left the game after you lost forty, kind of thing. Yeah. And you know we're all in our fifties and sixties and have the uh, the type of income that can sustain a hundred dollar loss once a month. No. If that were to happen, but of course you don't lose every time. And right. You know, and, and it just goes to my, th I, you know, I had a thought um, games just bring people together. And um, I wonder how we can bring some of that into our classrooms. Uh, have you explored at all um, like games and how those game games can bring kids together? Well, certainly, you know, doing reviews, using competition to do review of information, but I like to use competition where there, even if, you know, th where there can be multiple winners and where nobody really loses anything yeah. in, inside yeah. the competition, right? So it's, again, this is a place where we, I was talking about consequences and incentives before. Right. I don't like to give table points either or group points. Because what if you have the hardest kid in the room at your table and your table never gets points because of that kid. And now the rest of the kids hate that kid yeah. and hate me for putting that kid in their group. I, I try to avoid those kinds of situations at all costs. Yeah. So I often do things where it's like if any group can beat this time or this score or this thing, the entire class gets points towards our class-wide incentive. So right. now okay. it's no one person isn't doing it. It's like, if anybody can do it, we all win because we're, yeah. we're a team. When, right. when, when, when you're playing baseball and somebody hits a home run, the whole team celebrates that home run. The whole team benefits from that home run. Nobody goes, I hate that kid because they hit a home run and I can't hit a home run. Like <laughs> right. that never happens, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, some, so I like those kinds of things. A game I play for like vocabulary review a lot is the $100,000 pyramid. Oh, yeah, that sounds like fun. That's a super fun game. You play it in pairs. You pair the kids up. One set of kids sees a list of words related to what you've been teaching, right? So if you're teaching math, for example, or geometry, it might be like line, plane, uh, um, quadrant, you know, like those would be the kinds of words that the person right. would see. And then one person can't see them. So one person's sitting back to the wall and the partner A has to get their partner B to guess these words out loud without using the words in the, in the clues that they give. Uh -huh. So they describe it somehow and get that person to say it. And then when they get all four of them, they're supposed to jump up high 10, say woohoo and sit back down. So I, as the teacher know how many teams have completed the task. Oh, okay. Right? And afterwards I always ask, well, I do these in my workshops sometimes too. And I always ask people, so were your feelings hurt if you weren't the first team to jump up and woohoo? They're like, no, it's just exciting to hear the woohoo's happening around the room. And then it was like, come on, come on, we can get this. We can get this. Right. If you didn't get it and I stopped at the time, are you furious? No, it's a game. You know, you're going to switch yeah. roles. You're going to switch partners. You're going to try again. It's all like it just 
feeds the energy and in the room without anybody having to feel like they lost. The right. Game. Yeah. I love it. That's, a, that's such a cool game um, and, and thing to do for review. So I have your, I have your book right here Ooh, and that's yeah, that's your book. Uh, class conscious classroom management. One of um, three, one of my three books, one of your three. Uh, I have picture this in the other room, but my wife is going through the uh, credential program. Mm. So she's going to be an elementary teacher. So she's, nice. she's pretty excited about that. She's <laughs> welcome um, to the profession. Yes. Yeah. Um, and we, um, I think these books are great to get, to get started. And so she's, uh, looking at picture this. she likes the, the, some of the pictures in that one, but in the very end, something that sticks out to me, I just, I want to ask you about this just because I think this goes to the heart of everything that we've been doing, um, as educators and it's that recipe for learning that you have in here. Um, and I'll, I'll just read it out loud real quick. Start with a willingness to take risks, add healthy portion of fun, throw in a willingness to be lost, top it off with a willingness to be frustrated and blend it together and heat until done. And the end result is wonder. And I just, I love this idea of wonder. And I, I, I really hope that our teachers can think about how do we get kids to wonder because I think I I feel like that recipe also is the recipe for building students self-efficacy and that's been the theme of this this podcast this season has been how do we build student self-efficacy and how do we build teacher self-efficacy and I just um I wonder if you can just talk about how you know just the wonder and the fun and the engagement and all that can just help kids be more confident in being students? I think both for teachers and students, right. the thing that tears us down as learners, and teachers are learners too, right? We're learning how to be better at teaching every day, is when something happens, it doesn't go the way you thought, and you feel embarrassed or frustrated or like you can't do it. Kids feel that way all the time, right? I can't do this. I'm not smart enough, or I don't get it. I'm not going to say that. I'm just going to misbehave or... And teachers get frustrated with students. And then they're like, I can't do this. The student needs to be removed. The student shouldn't be here. Why do I have to handle Like, It feels very personal. Right. And you lose curiosity. You lose wonder. When you're taking these frustrations personally and you're making them something that is, you're judging yourself to be bad because of it, right? Teachers don't say, I'm bad because I can't make this student engage or behave they tend to blame the student but that's just a veiled way of saying i don't know i don't this makes me look bad and i can't handle that from an ego perspective so i'm going to blame the kid or mm. the or the parent or society or the administration right it's not me it's them because my ego can't handle this is the profession i chose and i wanted to be right. wonderful at and i'm not and i can't say i'm not good at it it's got to be them <laughs> Right. right. It's a defense mechanism. Yeah. Kids do the same thing. They go, I don't get it when they do get things, but they trying is too hard because it might be embarrassing or it might tear down their self-esteem. And then you lose all the joy and fun and wonder of learning. Yeah. And for kids, I really feel like the only way to build that in them is to be modeling it ourselves as the, the adult in the room. We have to be taking frustration in stride. We have to be laughing it off when we feel embarrassed. We have to be bringing humor 
to the classroom so that they can then try and be humorous too. And when it goes too far, we have to not take it personally and be able to put them back on the rails and help them see where that line is without making them feel like they're a bad person because they stepped over the line for a second or they didn't know where the line was. Mm -hmm. And that's just a really, really hard thing for adults to do is to, to not take themselves so seriously. Yeah. But it's essential, especially like I'm, I'm always saying in my workshops, things goes off, things go off the rails sometimes. Sometimes. Off the rails this year. <laughs> at some point. Yeah. What you do in the moment when your train of learning has gone off the rails tells the kids everything they need to know about whether you are a safe human and this is a safe environment for them to make mistakes. Right. Yeah. So what do you do in that moment? Can you laugh it off? Can you take it in stride? Can you make a joke about it? Can you just let it go? Or do you lash out because you're embarrassed or because you're frustrated or because you're taking it personally and blaming the kid or the class for what, how you feel right now? Right. Like that. And then there are other things you can be like, what are your mantras? What are the things you're saying all the time to kids? Shut up, sit down. Or are you saying things like <laughs> confusion is cool. I love that. We don't have the right answer here. I love that. Um, everybody's trying to give me answers and yet we're nowhere close to the correct answer yeah. because confusion is cool because confusion means we're about to get smarter. Our brains are about to get heavier. We're about to make a connection. I obviously didn't teach this well enough. Let me try again. Right. <laughs> Versus nice. saying I, where you all are not paying attention. I just said, nobody had, you know, like, how do you are is your mantra confusion is cool or your mantra is if you don't get it that's on you because i taught it Mm. right is your mantra um we're looking for progress not perfection or is your mantra i need the right answer who has the right answer like the those kinds of things your internal they don't have to be like mantras you say out loud but like that your internal belief about what is supposed to be happening in this classroom and what good learning looks like and what uh, what the positives are inside of confusion and um, in inside of not having the right answer, that communicates the culture of the classroom to your what you're trying to do to the kids. And they will either come with you or they will resist you based on some of those things. Mm. So wonder is hard to hold on to, but you, yeah. in the end, you have to really love being in the room with the kids, no matter what's pretty much happening. Right. You say to high school teachers all the time, do you love teenagers working with teenagers? And sometimes people would say, (laughs) not really. Why are you a high school teacher or middle school teacher? Like you have to love the nonsense of teenagers as much as you love your content area. And if you yeah. just love math or science or English or history, but you don't love teenagers and nonsense, you're maybe not in the right place uh, <laughs> Um, because you're never, if all you love is your content, you're, you're never going to create a positive culture. You're never going to have wonder and joy and humor in your classroom. Yeah. One thing I, you know, I'm out of the classroom now, but when I was in the classroom, one of the things that I would tell people, like, I'd say, oh, yeah, I'm a math teacher in high school. Oh, man. Wow. That seems I would not want to teach teenagers. <laughs> and I was like, well, I, I love teenagers. Like they, there's something different every day. Like every day is a different day for me. It's not the same thing. 
they're coming in with different personalities every day. Um, and depending on what grade they're in, they're way different, right? An 11th grader is way different than a ninth grader. And um, I just, I loved every day was different um, because the kids were, uh, were feed, you know, they feed your soul. And um, I, I totally believe that. Like you, like you said, uh, you have to love that. And that, I think that's one reason my wife is going into the um, credential program to be elementary. She was doing some long-term subs years ago at high school and she had wanted to be a high school teacher. And um, it just wasn't, didn't like, love the nonsense. Didn't connect, right? <laughs> and now she loves the kidney. She loves kindergartners and first graders. And I, and there's I, plenty of nonsense there too. It's just a there, different yes. nonsense. <laughs> and I tell her like, I would totally be like kindergarten cop in there. I would just, I'm just not the little kids. Uh, it's just not some, it, it, it's not the age I connect with. Let's just say that. <laughs> <laughs> I think that actually is a really important point. People go into teaching. They think they want to teach a particular grade or a particular subject. And when they aren't enjoying it when they aren't in if you've done it for two three four years and you're not enjoying it it isn't always because being a teacher isn't for you sometimes you're just in the wrong grade level mm -hmm. and you didn't know it or you're in the wrong kind of school and you didn't know it i was just doing observations at an open concept school which i didn't even know still existed <laughs> and i there were people there just crushing this structure, just like they had taken open concept and turned it into the most amazing teaching scenario. I couldn't have even guessed at, I couldn't have envisioned this working the way they were making it work. But there were other teachers there not making it work as well. And you could tell just from their demeanor, they weren't happy. Mm. It doesn't mean that they aren't happy being a teacher, but maybe open concept just isn't for them. Maybe they're yeah. at the wrong school site. And maybe they'd be super happy in a traditional four walls, my class classroom. Right. So just if you're listening to this podcast and you're a little bit burned out. Yeah. Don't don't immediately think you need to leave the profession. Like sometimes it really is about a change of grade level or a change of uh, structure, uh, environment or situation. And that sometimes makes all the difference. Absolutely. What's that's some great advice for everyone. Um, <clears throat> thank you so much for talking to me today. I want to wrap up by giving you a little bit of time. Just talk to us about Conscious Teaching LLC and what work that you do to help teachers and administrators and sites in, in the work that you do. So just briefly let us know how you can help other districts out there. Well, so primarily what Conscious Teaching does is my team and I, my team of trainers and I, we go, we get hired by schools or districts to go, come to them, to go to where they are, wherever they are in the country or internationally, and do like a professional development workshop with some selection of their teachers, sometimes a small group as small as 15, and sometimes groups as large as 800 in auditoriums. And we will on a particular topic. And like we said at the beginning, we mostly do classroom management and student engagement techniques. But what's special, I think, about what we do is we're not promoting a system of any kind. 
What we do is we lay out a buffet of techniques and strategies that are very practical and simple to implement. And we ask the people in our workshops to choose three of the 50 or 80 we might share in a three, four hour workshop and try those three and see if it makes a difference in a positive way for you and for your students. And all of the things we share will fit into any system, any pedagogical system, any curriculum, any discipline plan. So you never have to like throw anything out in order to take something from us and apply it. It's it, they're all add-ons, if you will. Yeah. I think that makes it easy for teachers to enjoy. Plus, you know, we're super funny. And yeah. we're like, oh, I, lo I, I love it every time you right? Like yeah. we're going for kind of stand-up comedy PD here. And <laughs> uh, and we're all very experienced teachers. This isn't armchair theory. We aren't researchers with PhDs who are telling teachers in a classroom th these things will work when we have never ourselves tried them. We have tried everything we talk about. We know it works, or at least it worked for us and our colleagues. And we've shared it with thousands and thousands and thousands of people and teachers, and they have given us the feedback of the things that have worked for them. So we're never putting out things we haven't tried. And in that way, we try to support people when they're feeling frustrated or they're starting to burn out or they've lost inspiration for what they're doing to help them solve problems that they're having to lower their frustration in simple ways, doing simple, small changes in their classrooms. So that's the primary thing we do. We do them in as webinars also. Uh, so if you can't afford to bring us out or you are in a location that you can't bring people to, like I have a client in Alaska who it's very difficult to bring me there because of the expense of the travel. And so we can do webinars, trainings, mm -hmm. live webinars with them as well. And we all taught during COVID. We all taught online lessons. We the things we talked about, like engagement for online learning, we were trying those things. We were making those things work. And uh, so we know what works in online learning as well. And that is something we can bring to our webinars. Yeah, I remember, uh, I remember one of your webinars, um, I was standing doing the stretches. <laughs> I was making you do standing <laughs> stretches. <laughs> yep. You can't sit for that long. Nope. And uh, and and that's the other thing, our... our uh, so, uh, the things that we are talking about for engagement are also the things that we use in our workshops. So we're not stand and deliver. You sit and listen and take notes. We do a little of that because you do that in a classroom, but we also do all the engagement things we're telling you will work with your students. We will be doing in our design of the workshop too. So you can feel how it impacts you as a learner and then maybe be more willing to try it. So workshops and webinars, that's our kind of our primary bread and butter. Uh, we also have books and they have all have book studies and things that you can do. And we have video courses that are self-paced that if you can't afford a webinar or that, it, or, or that isn't the, or you want something that your teachers can access all year and be building on all year, all year on their own schedule, or you want to use it during staff meetings, we have online video courses for that too. Some work being done on the house uh, yeah. next door there. And, um, <laughs> So that's that. Those are the primary things that that we have to offer. Awesome. Yeah. Well, anybody out there that's interested, uh, I I highly recommend working with um, Conscious Teaching LC. I've learned so much. I know the teachers have learned so much. They can reach out to you or um, find you online at 
where can they find you online? Oh, you can find me online at consciousteaching.com. Okay. And everything is there. All the things, services and products that we provide, uh, bios about all of us, what the company does. But that is definitely the place to start is consciousteaching.com. And if you're just looking for free ideas, like the ideas that I've offered here today, just go straight to the newsletter archive and uh, find a topic you're interested in, like cell phones. Oh, are man. You having, are you having trouble with cell phones? Well, I wrote a, a newsletter about that. It's a two-page PDF with five solutions and how to make them work. Everyone's going to go see that right now. Or pencil sharpening or kids not bringing pencils to class. I wrote a newsletter on that or bigger things like community building techniques are there too. And that kind of thing. But if you're something's bothering you, I better wrote a newsletter on it and it's in the free downloadable archive. Perfect. Perfect. Grace, thank you so much for joining me today on teaching accounts. Um, I really appreciate the conversation and I, I hope everybody has as well. Wonderful. Thank you for having me. This was absolutely a joy. Thanks.